I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, God, we are grateful to come into your presence again on the Lord's day to worship you as your people. God, we come with burdens and sin, and we come in the midst of our need. But we're reminded of the gospel and the truths that you've richly provided all that we need in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would grow our faith today, that you would help us to see how you really do supply all of our need, how Christ is, uh, that all of your promises are yes and amen in him, and that you've called us to walk through this life and the, the, the trials and the sin and the, under the curse uh, but you, you called us to walk in faithfulness in our vocation and love for you and for others. And we pray that you would better equip us and strengthen us to, to do that um, in, in the various callings that you've placed in each of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are into week eight of our class on work and vocation. We're into this section, this middle section. Well, this last week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to be particularly thinking about aspects of the gospel that come to bear on our work in both in our, in our, in our vocations, whether that's in the home or out in the world. So last week we talked a little bit more, it might have been a little bit more intellectual. It was a little bit more of a looking at the narrative of the Bible and how it really addresses the really the worldview questions that help us locate ourselves in in what's going on in the world. Where's history going? What's the purpose of it all? And we saw how the gospel provides really the answers to those questions. And that all the other worldviews that, you know, the ways that those questions are answered fall short in some way. So this week and next week, well, the next three weeks, we're going to continue talking about aspects of the gospel that um, affect how we, how we work in the workplace. Today, we're going to talk about faith and love in our vocation. Next week, bearing the cross in our vocation. And then on the 18th, a new power for work. We're going to talk about how the gospel affects our motivations and our, what we seek to gain out of our work. So uh, let me open with a question. Let's see. I want to think first, we're going to think about this, how does the gospel transform our ethic? That is, like, how we do our, how we live and work in our, in our workplace, how we, how we behave, how we relate with others. But first, I want to think about it on the other side of it, and ask the question the other way, you know, because there are certain ways that we are going to be different than our non-believing Co-workers, bosses, employees, employers, and so on. But there's other ways that we are actually called that we will be the same. So let me put it this way: How will a good non-Christian widget maker and their, you know, fill in the blank, firefighter, nurse, computer programmer, lawyer, what have you? How will a good non-Christian widget maker reflect God's good design for work? We talked about this a little bit last week. I mean, the gospel does, it changes our perspective, but there is common grace that we'll be able to see even good non-Christian people reflecting God's design in work. So what, what are some ways that you'll see that? Raymond? I'm reminded again of the meme that I saw on the Facebook about the guy talking with Jesus. He's like, hey, Jesus, do you think I should put a fish logo on my company logo so the people know I'm a Christian owned business? He's like, no, why don't you focus on putting out a quality product and see if they can figure it out from there? Uh, yeah. And that, that's definitely, there's definitely a truth to that. Just doing, doing good work, working hard, like being diligent in, in the work that we're called to do. I think um, those, that's definitely a way. What else? Ways that non-Christians will actually, without knowing what they're doing, reflect the image of God in the work that they're doing. Doing good work that's reflecting God's design without even knowing the gospel. They'll still work hard. Like yeah. Everybody else. They'll still be nice like everybody else. Um, but the joy that God has for us behind that is really there. Yeah. See it as a way of making money and providing for the family. Right. 
Yeah, so it's not necessarily going to change. They might be a really good nurse. They might take good care of people. They might make a really good case in court. It's not like the gospel, you know, you, you have to have the gospel to have good logic in making a court case or doing a good engineering design or fixing a machine in the post office. I mean, the gospel, in a sense, it changes everything, but in another sense, it doesn't change the particulars of what we're doing in our work. So, and it's important to remember this, you know, there's, Throughout the New Testament, you see the ex- an exhortation to do for Christians who might be tempted to think that maybe th- because we're saved, we're no longer required to even just do ordinary work well. In a sense, we're really reflecting the, the um, God's calling in Genesis, you know, to to fill the earth, to subdue it. Um, that's a calling which you see non-believers. Uh, reflect in how they do their work. Uh, you know, Paul said in Second Thessalonians three ten, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. In First Timothy five eight, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ephesians four twenty eight, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I mean, in these exhortations, we're seeing that. Uh, for the Christians, we are called to work in these ways, but these aren't aren't necessarily unique from non-Christians. Non-Christians are going to provide for their relatives. That you know, non-Christians typically know that um, working hard is honorable and good, and being lazy and a freeloader is not good. Although many many do that, <laughs> but there is, I think, part of an. Part of um, God's common grace is that we see non-Christians that work hard, that fulfill their contractual obligations, that treat people with respect, provide good customer service. Obviously, not perfectly, but we see that even reflected in non-Christians. So today, I want to think a little bit more about how what the gospel changes for us as believers. I mean, it should make us good, hard workers, but... Uh, and it should we should be fulfilling our contractual obligations. We should be providing good customer service. But just like we're not, you know, it's not like we're still in the garden. In that we live in a world that's fallen and broken, and the gospel brings redemption and transformation in that midst of that fallen and brokenness. So there's more that can be said about how the gospel transforms our our lives, our work in whatever that vocation is. So, to put it more positively, how then does the gospel transform the work that a Christian widget maker does as compared to a non-Christian widget maker? It may not change the widgets that he makes, but what does it change about how he does it? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. Yeah, he's going to have a different... What do you mean by that, Becky? Um, God has... You were saved by him for a purpose. There's... Right. The work, the good works that we do for him. Um, right. So it's our attitude about, about right. what we do. So it's the same work in a sense. You're still making the same widget, mm-hmm. but you're doing it for a different motivation you're, and, and looking to a different audience in a sense. You're looking. You're not just doing it for yourself. It's for God. Yeah. What else? Call on for help, for wisdom, for guidance. Yeah. You have different sorts of strength and inner strength. That's Anything else? It's not just about making money. Yeah. It's not just about fulfilling my inner right. need for people to say I'm good at something or that I did a good job. But yeah. Yeah. And we're going to... Um, so I, let me put up my answers. Some of these you already hit on. What you're talking about, Trish, inner, I'm putting here, inner rest and peace with God that we've already, that's going to be, not this week or next, but the week after, we're going to especially think about that aspect of it, that if we've been justified by faith in God, that we don't no longer have to earn standing with God, we have an identity that's not grounded in our performance, our accomplishments, then that changes our motivations and our heart orientation toward our work. Um, But... Uh, today and uh, today we're going to talk about these first two. That even in the midst of making widgets or whatever it is that you're doing in your work, um, faith in God and love for others. As a Christian, we we that will change how we how we do our work. The gospel will transform our work, um, not necessarily in what what we're doing, but the fact that we're doing it with faith in God and love for others. It's also, and this is going to be next week, we're going to talk about how the gospel gives us a new perspective on trials, 
whether that's from outside of us, but for many of us, I would venture for all of you, in some to some degree or another, your vocation is a provides a unique flavor of trials, difficulty, challenges, whether that's from outside, you know, other coworkers, um, unfair treatment, uh, even just moral dilemmas. How do I deal with these? You know, this challenging situation. So, and the gospel is going to equip us with unique perspective and how to how to how to face those. But today we're going to focus on faith in God and love for God and others. So the main idea is that faith in God and His promises will transform ordinary work for the Christian into an act of worship. It doesn't necessarily change the ordinary work that you're doing. It may, externally, it may not look that different, um, but it can really become an act of worship. And then love for the Christian uh, will also be the guiding principle for us in our vocation. And we're going to talk about love. It's not, you know, love is used in a lot of ways today, but for the Christian, we're thinking specifically of love for God and love for others as, as we see it defined for us biblically, what, what love is. We're going to start with faith, though. And it's just as a reminder, some um, principles we see in the Bible about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So, if we're thinking, asking the question, well, how do I please God in my vocation? Hebrews 11.6 would lead us to believe it has, there has to be an aspect of faith. Faith is part of what it means to please God in our vocation. In Romans 14, Paul says, For whoever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Uh, that's in a little bit different context, but I think the principle still applies, that faith, if we're not working in faith, then we are uh, working for other reasons, which ultimately will be not to give glory to God, which will be sin. And 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, which is not necessarily something that we see. Um, you know, we don't see shining fire, you know, what, what Moses saw on the mountain of God appearing with his glory, what Jesus and his disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. That You're not going to go to work and necessarily have that experience and see God's glory in that regard. But So there's an aspect of faith here in that we're doing it for the glory of God, but we don't yet see that. We don't see how it all plays out. So how does faith impact your work and your vocation? I want to look at Ephesians 6 as we think about into the more of the nitty-gritty how does faith impact our vocation would someone read for me ephesians 6 5 through 9 i've got it up up there or you can you could also turn there and if you want to as as we're reading that you could also turn to colossians 3 colossians 3 22 to 4 1 you could compare those i'll, I'll be referencing both they're, they're parallel passages but would someone read for me ephesians 6 5 through 9 Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thanks, Scott. So, here we have Paul's exhortation to bondservants and masters, which, you know, in that day, you had bondservants. It wasn't quite like slavery that we think of, but it's people who have committed to relationship of service to their master. They may be that they were they didn't have money, they had to be they were um, forced into this role or they may have even entered it voluntarily, but they were in a position of sub- subjection to a master who was responsible for their uh, in a sense their employment, but more more they, the master had more authority than an employer would today but even though it's the social relationship is a little bit different there's principles here that i think we can definitely glean for our society where we do have relationships of authority and submission in the workplace in particular 
when you look at the bond servant in particular, so as a bond servant, we're going to think of how we can apply the instructions to bond servants to those of us who are employees. And in a sense, I could back up a second. I mean, in one sense, he's applied to employee, employer. If you have a supervisor, you know, he's your master in a sense, and you're the bond servant. But in another sense, you see authority structure, you see a variety of different authority structures in the workplace. So I think uh, anywhere that we find ourselves under authority, we can hear the exhortations of five through eight. And anywhere we find ourselves in authority, whether that's formal or not, we should hear the exhortation of verse nine. So what's the, first of all, what's the actual command that's given to bond servants? There's a lot in verses five through eight, but go back, you know, what is it? Fourth, fifth grade, English class, what's the actual imperative, the verb of what are you? What is the actual command that's given to the bond servants? Obey. Obey. All right, Becky passes there. Uh, that's your that's your direct imperative. Obey your earthly masters, and then he goes on. The rest of verses um, five through eight is all explaining how you would obey, how you would not obey, and the motivations for that obedience. So in one sense, that's just a very simple command, obey your earthly masters. But let me ask the question as you look at this, how does faith transform that simple command? In some ways, it's ordinary. I mean, obeying your masters meant doing ordinary tasks. It didn't mean read the Bible to them. It didn't mean share the gospel with them. I'm sure there could be opportunities to share the gospel, but that's not what obey your masters means. It means, you know, do what you're called to do. Take care of the animals. Go to the, go get the, uh, go to the store. Clean the house manage the the household uh, whatever that meant for that in those specific contexts it, it was ordinary work but how does faith when you look at these verses what do you, what are the clues you see here uh, where paul is paul's exhortations really assume a heart orientation of faith in god well if we're going to go back to fourth grade we have to look at how are you supposed to obey? <laughs> right? Like, as. As how? Right. As you would oppress, that changes everything. Right. It's not about the earthly master anymore. It's about Christ. Right. Which, I don't know if that's... If you put that in your daily work, just think how revolutionary that really is. Um, obey your earthly master, so, yeah, go take his ox to the market or whatever you had to do as you would Christ or fill out your spreadsheet or take care of that unruly patient or whatever as you would Christ you see that verse both in verse 5 this orientation toward Christ but also you know you see that in verse 6 not by way of eye service as people pleasers but as bond servants of Christ you're actually you're, so you're a bond servant of Joe but no actually you're actually a bond servant of Christ and when you're obeying Joe you're doing the will of God from the heart. And then if you're, you miss that, he says it again in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. He, he also gives us some negatives. What are the negatives? Like ways, ways not to obey your earthly masters. Not by way of service as people pleasers. Yeah, what does that mean? Don't do it to get the accolades of men. Right. Yeah, don't do it to gain their favor, presumably for the sake of you know getting rising up the ladder, getting their approval, getting their rewards. Um, not that those are bad things necessarily, but that our our orientation of our heart, faith transforms that orientation so that instead of just about work being a way to please someone to in order to gain more responsibility or compensation for yourself or approval from others now you're actually doing the will of God you're actually serving Christ in doing your ordinary work that's something that all of us I think I mean I've found that's transforming in my own thinking but I encourage you all as you're thinking about your work to realize that God actually whatever it is whatever ordinary work you're doing it's actually Faith allows you to understand that you're actually serving Christ. Not that He needs your service. Not that He, you know, He's in any way lacking, and you know that you're you're doing things that benefit Him in that sense. But that you're actually doing work as bond servants of Christ. There's another aspect of faith, though, that I want you to see, it's particularly in verse eight. Uh, he says, "As you're doing this, you're doing your good good for your master." 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. What is he talking about there? I mean, is this like a Christian version of karma? Um, you know, you do good and uh, you're going to get good back. What is he? What is he talking about? I think that God sees or has a heart, and He does pay the heart. He does reward good for good. And when does He reward it? Well, I guess in the future. In the future. I mean, sometimes now, but sometimes not. I mean, sometimes you might do good for your earthly master, and your earthly master might mistreat you, might separate, you know, in this context, the masters might have authority to separate you from your children, to sell you. I mean, there's, you know, there's no guarantee that that good you receive back means that you're actually going to advance in your career and gain, you know. Uh, so Colossians 3, where it's, it's a very similar passage, it actually gives a little more light on what he's talking about. He says almost word for word, some of the same um, same exhortation. He says, Obey those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So one of the ways I think... I mean, the Gospel tells us that Christ rose from the dead, conquered sin and death, and that He's going to reign overall he's going to co- that the world is not the way it appears in that sense that there's a new creation coming jesus is the first fruits of that and we're all looking forward to that day and so when you do good to your earthly masters and you don't receive recognition for it faith will look beyond your earthly circumstances to see that there will be a day when King Jesus will reign on his throne and he will make all things right. And that will be the day when I will receive back from the Lord the good that I've done. Not in the sense of earning salvation, not that you're going to become, you become God's child if you obey well enough or anything to that effect, but that there will be a, a reckoning in that good works that are, that are done, that are not recognized. You know, the Lord sees them all. And the flip side of that is the next, verse 9. That... Faith looking forward to a final judgment, a day of reckoning when Jesus will make all things right, works both ways. It works when you're suffering unjustly or just maybe not being recognized or justly compensated for your work. But it also works when you're the one in authority. Look at what he says in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians makes it a little more explicit that he's thinking of the final, he's looking ahead to final judgment because he says, he adds this in Colossians, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. So how does, I'm introducing that thought, but someone want to explain how faith changes your perspective when you're in authority? I'll take a step. Yeah. Well, a person who's in authority um, you know, they have to recognize that they have an authority above them. And so if they they are exercising that authority as a servant leader, they'll recognize that and they'll treat those folks as they want to be treated. Right. And then they're abiding by this. Right. Yeah, so that same, you know, the final judgment is not something that we know by sight. Um, it's something we know by faith. The gospel, I mean, it, it's an implication of the gospel that, that Jesus will make all things right, wrong will be paid back. But that's, that's something that we have to take by faith. When earthly authority structures are actually not going to be in place, he says there is no partiality with him. It doesn't matter whether you were the master, the, the president on earth. You're going to be called to account for how you, how you lived. It's kind of cryptic in a sense. He says masters do the same to them. I don't think he necessarily, I mean, he's not, he's not necessarily overthrowing the authority structure, um, although it's a little bit unclear, like, what does he mean, do the same to them? And I think what he's getting at, I mean, in, in Colossians, he says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. So I think he's saying, you know, as a slave will do their good work as to the Lord and not to men. You know, masters, you have a different role. You are called to be an authority. He's not saying don't be an authority, but do that as to the Lord and not to men. And that will transform how you 
view those who are underneath you. I had an opportunity this week to put this into practice. Uh, specifically, as you think about, I, I was challenged to think about how you know all will be made right at the final, the final day. Because it's not always all made right now. I was in a meeting with a relatively prominent figure in a not Shasta County area, but we were doing a project at a government institution and someone who's in authority there. I felt really treated me poorly and spoke insulted me and spoke harshly to me and there was a part of me that wanted to you know respond defensively and or just have be, be done with this i don't i don't need this i don't want to be part of this project anymore like it's not right I, there was i think there was truth in that he was not it wasn't right what he was doing but as i was reflecting on this you know this really transforms how when we look at those circum those situations with faith for me it was an encouragement to see that you know the good that i'm doing to the best of my ability it's not something i'm necessarily going to receive back now but i will receive it back from the lord and the masters who threaten who use their authority to manipulate people, to insult them, to, to mistreat them, they actually are going to be called to account for someday. They may not today, like in this life, they may in a sense get away with it. There's people in authority that are not necessarily receiving the just retribution for the way they abuse that authority. But there will be a day when they will be called to account for it. So in this sense, I, I would faith transforms how we view these relationships. It doesn't necessarily change the, the details of what you're doing, or, um, but it, it can transform your heart uh, orientation in the midst of them. Yeah? In, in your situation, would it have been any different? What would your role have been if this person was treating your employees that way and you observed that? Yeah, that is a good... Uh, one of my employees was there with me in the meeting, and... Um, you know, I think there would, it's a, it would be a fine line, because on one hand, I'd be both in authority and one in authority in the same situation. So I'd want to, um, you know, as best I can, protect and, and lead my employee well, but at the same time, do that in deference to the one who's in authority over me. I don't know. That's, Think about yep. that in my relationship with my wife as well. If somebody's attacking me, it's different than someone attacking me. Right. So just trying to keep that Yeah. Yeah. Another way that faith... Um, so if you didn't, I forgot to announce at the beginning. At 9.45, I'm going to transition, and we're going to have Keith up here, and we're going to do a little dialogue about what his vocation is like. So I'm going to try to keep myself on schedule for that. Another way that faith transforms how we think about vocation... I mean, it's all, in a sense... Look, remember what Hebrews 11 said. You know, Faith it means believing that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So... There's an aspect of faith that is looking... First, it's just believing who God is, doing things for the glory of God, but also that He's going to make all things right. That because of who He is and because of the Gospel, there's a new creation coming. And it changes our attitude towards riches and wealth, um, which obviously affects how we deal with our you know situations in vocation. But instead of being haughty, as for the rich in this present age, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, you know, he doesn't just stop there. He could just stop there in a sense, like that's a complete thought. But he grounds it actually in a future hope. He says, here's why you are to have this attitude towards wealth. Instead of setting your heart on it, instead of um, trying to amass it for yourself, instead of to climb the ladder so that you can get more, you know, increase your salary and all that. Um, not that those things are wrong, but instead of setting your hopes on them, look, he says, verse 19, you, you look ahead to the future where you are storing up for yourself a, a good foundation for the future so that they, that is the rich, may take hold of that which is truly life. So uh, a heart of faith that looks beyond these current circumstances will transforms how we think about money as well. Let me just, before I transition out of faith, let me just uh, share a quote from Martin Luther, which he wrote two handmaids in particular. But he says, if you do your household chores, that is better than the holiness and austere life of all the monks. Martin Luther really campaigned for this in his writings against the, uh, the Catholic Church at his time, but he argued that faith really transforms our ordinary work to something that we, when we do it with an attitude as to Christ, that it becomes an, attitude, uh, an act of worship. 
that we don't have to be doing, you know, shutting ourselves away and reading our Bible to be doing something that's pleasing to God. Not, not to say that we don't want to, we need to spend time with God, but that when you're try, spending time with God and your children interrupt you and, or you have to go to an emergency meeting for work or something, you know, it's not as though you've left the realm where you're doing work that's pleasing to God and now you're, you're burdened with these ordinary things that are unpleasing to God. When we do those ordinary things, household chores or uh, work responsibilities with faith, we can see they actually are acts of worship. Any questions on faith or comments on that before we move on? I want to talk a little bit about love and invocation as well. All right. So, love in our day is, you know, we are, it's almost, I mean, it's hard to talk about it in our culture without all of the baggage that goes along with it. But uh, in the sense that love today often is associated with the idea of tolerance and accepting all people and their ideas for who they are without any form of judgment or, or um, truth speaking into, the, into our lives. Um, that love really becomes God in the sense of accepting people for who they are is the greatest good. And so obviously we don't mean that. That's not the biblical idea of love. The gospel really shows us what love looks like. And that wasn't Jesus saying, you know, it's okay that you've sinned against the Holy God. You know, I'm just going to accept you for who you are and you can do what you want. It was, no, that's, you know, you've sinned against the Holy God. You deserve God's judgment, but I'm going to take that judgment upon myself. So 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he, Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Paul says a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there's a lot more that could be said about what love is, but it, at a, we need to at least understand that it has biblical love is demonstrated through self-sacrificial giving for the good of others. That's what God did for us. You know, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not driven by just this idea of reciprocity that, you know, that you'll give so that you can get in return. Um, it's, a, it's sacrificial. It's giving of yourself for others. That's what we see in the gospel. And that should shape our understanding of what love is when we are called, um, Jesus has tell, told us uh, that love is the greatest commandment. I won't read all this just for the sake of time, but uh, you guys remember this probably from Jesus's interactions with one of the Pharisees. They ask him, what are the greatest commandments? And he responds, quoting from the Old Testament, the first is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, which is very similar to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, you know, love for God is the greatest commandment, and I'm gonna, but I'm going to spend most of my time now just talking about that second part, love for your neighbor, and how that plays out in our vocations. You know, the Pharisees asked, you know, Jesus told them this, and I think the next question was, well, who's my neighbor, right? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he specifically said that you shall love, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's, you know, he specifically addresses this question of, well, can we only love those who love us? And says, no, God is good. He shows his goodness to the just and the unjust, the evil and the, and the, and the righteous. So you go do, and go do the same. You can't just love those who love you. You know, I don't know, maybe you're like me, but I've, when I've heard that verse over the years, I guess it depends what my circumstances are at the time, but I usually think of enemies as like, you know, people who are trying to kill me or, which uh, so far at least, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone that's tried to kill me. Um, so, you know, it's hard, I'm not always, and I wouldn't necessarily want to label someone my enemy. Um, you know, it, that seems like a little bit of a harsh label for people that I maybe don't get along with. But if you just maybe generalize the concept a little bit more, that if, you, if an enemy is someone who 
either intentionally or maybe even unintentionally acts in a way that's harmful to my well-being, that's not in my best interest, that's hurtful to me or my, um, you know, my financial interests, my family, those kinds of things. You can see that, not that I would call them my enemies, but I, I, in, I interact frequently with people that act in that way in my vocation. People that are looking out for them, themselves and as a result are acting in ways that are harmful to me. And Jesus is telling me that I need to love those people. I think this is Linus, right? Uh, he says, um, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. You know, we can talk about loving, the importance of love, why it's, we're called to it, you know, as a concept, it's fine. But then, you know, tomorrow you go to work and there's a person next to you and that person might be difficult to get along with. But this is what God has called us to. When he says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And anywhere on that spectrum, from those that it's easy to love to those that you run across in your daily responsibilities that are difficult, that rub you the wrong way, that are irksome, that don't think of your well-being above themselves, and those are the people that God has called you to love. I think you can see that. You know, all of you can maybe fill out these categories with own your own Circumstances. Not all of you are in the workplace necessarily, but you know, employees, bosses, coworkers, clients, vendors, uh, other people that you're engaging with in daily work are people that God has called you to love. In a sense, they are your neighbor. I remember as a, I started my own business about ten years ago, and as I was working through a, trying to figure out how to set up a stock ownership plan so that I could help others, have others be part owners of my business, I would meet at, I met with different lawyers and tax professionals to help me figure that out. And as I was meeting with them, I was finding that their, one of their underlying assumptions was that as a business owner, your job, your, your perspective is really to figure out how to keep as much money for yourself while keeping your employees like relatively happy so they stay. Like that was the underlying assumption of how they they viewed um, business owners. That you know you're you're called to. I mean your your goals are to to provide for yourself and basically just you know keep your employees happy enough that, that they don't leave. But if you're actually called to love them, to you know as Ephesians six said, um, you know masters are called to to treat their um, slaves to think to treat their slaves as though they're going to. Uh, with the mindset that they're going to be called to account for how they, they treated them, it really it should change how you view those under your authority. Similarly, if you're, you're viewing your boss, I mean, you, it's not going to change the authority structure between you and your boss, but if you seek to love him or her or remember that, you know, he's a human or she's a human too. I try to remind myself of that when I deal with difficult clients or people that really bother me or do things that frustrate me in my work. You know, that person is a human made in the image of God who's under the curse of sin and is acting in their own self-interest. They're selfish. They're proud. They're trying to find their identity in their work, perhaps. Not that I know all those things about them, but thinking of them as a person who made in the image of God but is acting in sinful ways, you know, it helps to just, for me at least, to de-escalate the, uh, especially the emotion that can uh, can build up, like, why did they do that? And, you, you know, this you get into this, routine of wanting to try to make things right yourself. Love transforms that. Whether that's an employee, a boss, a coworker, a client, I think our vocations are a place where I, you can all relate with this, where you're going to run across people where you may not call them your enemy, but you may want to at some times. Um, so before we bring Keith up, just as a few points of application as we think about faith and love in our vocation. So Thinking about faith in particular, you know, looking ahead to the final judgment, when we look by faith to Jesus, who will someday soon, maybe tomorrow, I don't know, um, he will reign over all in perfect justice. And we can serve our earthly employers with joy, even when our good work is not appreciated or rewarded now. We have a different audience. It's we're not just seeking to please people. And then conversely, when we're in authority, when we look by faith to Jesus, who will soon reign over all in perfect justice, we will treat others fairly and not take advantage of them. Even if our authority is such that we could take advantage of them, that we could threaten to get our way, the final judgment, when we think of that by faith, will transform how we act. And then when we remember the love of God displayed for us in the gospel, we will love others in our vocation as an expression of 
thankfulness to God. Any questions on faith and love before we have Keith come up? Or anything you wanted to share? All right. Ready, Keith? Sure. Um, I don't know if you want to... Yeah. Yeah. So, starting this week and then in the coming... Yeah, I think we've got seven, six or seven weeks left. I'm going to compress my lesson down to about 45 minutes and then we're going to have more of a, a conversation dialogue. So I want, as you all, you know, you all have different roles and responsibilities in your vocations and I'd like to be able to let you guys hear from others too. And I want to learn from others too. So um, I have a series of questions here that we'll use as kind of a, a springboard and then from there, you know, be thinking as well if you have any questions. So... Uh, we can. Is this the same questions you sent me? No, I changed them up. And, uh, <laughs> no, they're, yeah, they're the same questions. So you can go ahead. But the first was just like, um, maybe introduce yourself and what kind of work do you do? Okay, so um, my name is Keith Greenwood. I'm a forester for Sierra Pacific Industries. I've worked for them for 40 years. Um, I've worked in a variety of places uh, in California, Washington, and, and then back in California again. Um, so what I do is a. a current role is a district manager, so I manage uh, for the company 163,000 acres in Trinity County. What did you, um, you want to just like, tra- that's what you do now, I'm wondering what you've done, is that what you've always done at Sierra Pacific, or have you done other things to get up into that role? Um, so I graduated from Humboldt State University in California as a forester, and then acquired the enough uh, experience to take the registered professional foresters exam in California and as a licensed forester you can prepare the documentation that's required in California to harvest timber. So um, California has a very uh, complicated process. It takes, I'll just give you an example, it's about uh, $2,000 to do something in Washington that costs $50,000 to do in California. The same thing. The permit, instead of five pages, is 360 pages here. Um, it takes us six months to prepare one of these documents. And in Cal- in Washington, I could do it in uh, sometimes on a weekend, um, you know, a Saturday. So it's it's a whole different uh, regulatory climate, and it's and it's one of facilitation versus uh, a proposal that is uh, one that's looked at a little differently. So, um, and I started out by just uh, worked for a company that uh, had me marking timber. I would mark trees, I would uh, assess the values, and I'd identify which trees were dying and which ones need thinning and that sort of thing. So I'd walk around. And then I would uh, flag uh, protection areas, streams, unstable features, uh, archaeological sites, and things like that. And I, I still do that to a degree now. All right. So, how does your work? How do you see God's good design from creation? Like what we talked about, those of you might remember the first several weeks, just how God's, what God made us to do from creation. How do you see that reflected in your work? Well, for me, it's kind of easy because trees are beautiful. You know, the environment's beautiful. How He's created them is beautiful. How they work, the structural strength of fibers, uh, and we could use those things. Um, uh, managing timber can uh, produce clean water. Um, you know, if we turn it into a pavement, it doesn't uh, produce the same quality of water as it does when it ro- flows through the, the duff and the soil. Um, the regeneration process where trees, the ground burns up and then there's seeds that uh, regenerate and you just watch that over time. It's, it's, uh, it's neat. There's a recycling process when things break down and there's certain creatures that break down and, and create more soil and nutrition for the trees so they keep growing and mm. and uh, whether we're there or not um, God takes care of it um, I was asked by my son when he was 11 what do you do dad and I as a forester and I thought well he should know by now he's been on my shoulders from the beginning and I told him well I help the trees grow and he said well can't they grow by themselves <laughs> and I said yes and so with that did for me in my mind was to say, okay, everything I do now needs to help them grow better. So whether I put back um, the species that I think is more most appropriate for it, because we've had uh, influences, man's influences, and climate, and fire, and all kinds of things have influenced what's there now, and what do we want, and what's beneficial to, to man and the environment. Hmm. Yeah, it almost seems like, I mean, do you, would you say... 
in my mind, I, without having done what you do, it, almost, it seems like you know what Adam had been told, told to do, to govern, subdue, like to care for the garden. It's like the, your garden is Trinity County, I th- or whatever, the 163,000 yeah. acres. I, I wonder, does that, do you think that's an accurate? Sure, it's yeah. stewardship all the way. Yeah. You know, it's not, and that's where the, you know, fall, the fall comes in, which is your next question. Is right. Man is um, selfish, and then can have, through that, selfishness and greediness can lead to overtraction, um, being wasteful, careless, create to pollute, pollution, erosion, loss of habitat, all kinds of things. So proper stewardship is, is part of what we're given as well. Yeah. Are there other ways you see the fall impacting your... It's mostly people, you know? The, I, <laughs> you know, the, the weather is the weather. So, you know, we have floods and wind and fire and all kinds of stuff like that, but I don't take that so much to heart. It's when people do things just for themselves or it's just focused on on greed. Yeah. We don't, we don't tolerate that. And do you see that even like in your... Part of it, I, I assume, is like out there, like whether it's past sins of like over-harvesting or like I know in Trinity County you've got the... Uh, the gold rush, some of that, um, yeah. mining. Um, but do you also see it like internally if you're in a position, you know, with uh, how, how does that affect you feel like your relationships in the office? And uh, um, So with the, with the foresters themselves, most of them have a very, they come up with a strong land ethic. Um, they're environmentalists too, and it's their environment that they want to protect. Hmm. Um, but there are Sometimes it's usually remote landowners. Maybe it's an investment firm that's uh, from an insurance company or something, and they want to buy a piece of land and then have it pay them certain dividends. Um, forestry is a long-term investment. You know, it's a crop that doesn't rotate every year. It's 70, 80, 90, 100-year rotation. So um, if you just look to short-term extraction, you end up with uh, consequences for that. Hmm. So whether it's... Um, not producing. Um, it's got a, a minor species or a species like uh, knobcone pine or something that has no commercial value, not even very good wildlife values, then um, the land base can change to a different species. Hmm. Yeah, that always, I've, it just boggles my mind that you can be in a business where there's that long of a cycle. Like, I mean, you're doing work today that isn't, it's going to be harvested by, um, you know, three generations later, it seems. I mean, is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I spent 20 years down in um, Butte County, where the uh, Bear Fire took place, and um, so I spent 20 years growing trees there, and I watched them get real close to commercial harvest, and in one night, the whole thing burned up. Oh. Hmm. So I've only been back there once, and uh, I took a friend of mine, and he said, "Well, how many of these trees are going to survive?" And I, I looked over the horizon, and I said none. There were none. There was the whole thing was burnt. The fire lined up on the south branch of the Middle Fork of the Feather River, and it burned over towards Fork Town just in, with one windshield. Hmm. So, but you know, if if our hope is in this life or this planet or all we have is Mother Earth, you know, we're going to be right. feeling pretty pretty frail. Yeah, it seems like. I remember I mean, we talked one of the previous lessons about Solomon looking at the earth and like just concluding life's pointless. I feel like, I wonder if that's a way, you know, if a life under the sun is all there is and you're harvesting, a, you're, you're growing a harvest and then it all burns up, I feel like you'd probably conclude with Solomon. Like, it's vanity. Like, why do we even do this anymore? I mean, yeah. you know, it's, that's why I like work for a family. You know, the family that I have, hmm. they uh, demonstrated time and time again, even after it burns up, they, salvage what they can and then reforest. Even places that have no commercial value, they are reforest again. And Mm. that's what we do as foresters too. I think the the practice of renewal is uh, and regeneration is is not just with with, the natural environment, but with with our lives too. This is not all there is by any stretch. Um, I like to look at uh, two things that govern how I look at work. One is there, were, there was an example of uh, David and Solomon, and someone pointed out, no, David and uh, Saul. And Saul um, governed to please people. Mm-hmm. 
and he had that influence his decision making and David um, tried to rule to honor God and that's what I try and do too is when I uh, have to make a decision is it to honor God or is it to make me look good I don't want it to be something that's to make me look good. Right. I want to elevate the the owners and and be responsible for what they've given me stewardship over, but uh, it needs to honor God. And then I was taught too that uh, everything in life there is no separation between the spiritual and the not spiritual. Everything is either either honors God or it doesn't. Whether it's how you get up in the morning, you can honor God in the way you get up, or or not. You know, you can brush your teeth. Because you have to, or because you're taking care of what God's given you. So, um, how you treat people and how you treat things that you're given stewardship over needs to honor God. Hmm. Yeah. Was I? I don't know if that was. You wanted to share something separate for the fourth question. Uh, um, how does the gospel reshape your perspective on your work, or is it? Yeah. So, man's creating God's image, and staff, contractors—they all have the value that God gave them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as fallen creatures, sins impact to the environment. We'll try to fix the environment as if that's all there is. Um, God sent His Son to redeem the world and His people, and He'll correct the people and the environment. Uh, we don't need to worship Mother Earth, but rather the Creator. And so my primary focus is to manage the people and the creation and recognize that uh, there's sinful man involved yeah. in it, and then uh, reveal God in, in every aspect that I can. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Keith. Does anyone have any questions for um, for Keith or what what he does or how these principles have kind of played out in his career? It's fun. It's, it's when you have a job where you wake up Monday morning and you like it. Yeah. You know, you've been doing it for forty years. It's not a bad job. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Keith. That was great. Yeah, I think of. It seems like you're, in some ways, it, the, the lines between creation. What we're commanded to do and, and your vocation are are very straight, very easy to connect. So, but yeah, I'm sure. And I'm dependent on him for sure. You know, I, I don't have control of the rain, I don't have control of the fire, hmm. a little bit, but not much. Um, and so, you know, we could put a seedling in the ground, and then we don't get to water it again. And little things come up and eat them, and hmm. you know, but we plant millions of trees, and they keep growing. Yeah. Yep, God waters the earth. He does, he does. He's yep. doing a good job. He's doing a good job today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'm going to close in prayer. And um, next week, I think we're going to have Donovan Geyer up here, if I remember right. Our Father in Heaven, God, we just thank you so much for your, um, your love for us. We thank you that you've placed us in this world to, to serve you and that we can do that in the ordinary things that you've given us to do. I pray that you would build our faith so that we can brush our teeth for the glory of God, we can manage forests for the glory of God, we can care for our children to the glory of God, we can um, do whatever you've called us to do uh, for, the, for your glory. We pray that you would help us when we're tempted to do what we're doing to please man as, or, or for selfish motives uh, or for our own Glory, we pray that you would uh, reorient our hearts and, and give us eyes of faith to look to Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And I pray that as we do that, you would help us also to love others and be willing to give ourselves for them, even at cost to ourselves in the various circumstances and callings that you've placed us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.